Redemption Church, there's a time where the rubber meets the road, wherein our study becomes practice. Otherwise, our study is meaningless, it's futile, or even incriminating before God because we knew what we ought to have done and yet did not do it. There comes a time where we must put into practice what we have learned together in God's word. And that opportunity comes most obviously, most easily this weekend at Salmon Days. There is a button on the website right under the church logo that says sign up to serve at Salmon Days. This role, the pastoral role, according to scripture, is to equip you for works of ministry. And so here it is. You can't make it much easier than this. There's a button on the website and there's a sign-up sheet in the back. You don't have to be a trained apologist. You don't need multiple master's degrees in evangelism to just share your faith. This is an opportunity wherein last year 10,000 people came to this festival. This year they're expecting even more. This is an opportunity for us to meet people in our community, people who are hurting, people who struggle with addiction, people who are grieving loss, people who have cancer, people who are about to face a car accident. With 10,000 people, what are the odds that not one of them will face something tragic the week after they meet you. And you give them a fun photo, but you give them eternally more. There are Saturday morning shifts from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., Saturday afternoon shifts from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. And the same thing on Sunday, to the glory of God, some of you get to play hooky from church. Sunday, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., and Sunday, 2 p.m. to 6 p.m., we could use some help setting up too, but our booth is not all that complicated. Really, there's just a big painting that Pastor Mike had commissioned of salmon, and it's laid out on a gym mat. And so people lay sideways, they defy gravity. It looks like they're swimming with the salmon. It is genuinely hilarious. And people love it. The mayor of Issaquah loved it. It's a big hit. And we never run out of supplies either because we just emailed them the photo. So we need people to check them in, get their name and their email address so that we can send them the photo. People to press a button. That's it. Jesse, I can't cook. I can't drive all that well. I can't sing. I'm not gifted spiritually. Can you do this? You can help lead people to Jesus. This is your moment. This is what you've been waiting for. Introverts of the world, unite. This is it. This is what you've been praying for, a way to lead people to Jesus that fits your gifts and your abilities. This is it. And then we need someone to send the email with the photo in it. That's it. Along with the photo, they get an invitation to our church. They get a copy of the curriculum that we're currently studying. They get an invitation to the table. For skeptics, this, this is it. This is as easy as it gets right here. So if you're able, and I believe that you are, sign up to serve right now. Right now. We're going to go before the Lord. We're going to pray. The ushers are going to come forward and, and take the offering. Would you join me as we go before God? We love you, Lord. You've been so incredibly good to this church. 
Lord, I thank you for the incredible team who faithfully serves week in and week out. God, volunteers like Mervin, Caleb, Alessio, Nathan, Lord, all of these people who help make student ministry possible, my bride, my kids for that matter. I thank you, Lord, for both of the Alessios, the Alessio bros as we call them, God. For Tyler, for Caleb, for Marnie, for Coach Bob, for Naomi, for everyone who serves in worship ministry, for everyone who serves in the sound booth, Alex, Mark, Julia, Austin, the other Mark, Sergio, Russ, Galen, who drives the trailer, his bride, Shauna, who's with him every week. Lord, there are so many people who show up to set up and then to tear down there. Thank you for everyone who served. And I lift up those who have been just waiting on the sidelines, a little bit shy to step in. I pray that they would step in and they would see how awesome the water is. I pray, Lord, that those who have never given before would also step up and just see what a blessing it is to give, oh God. We give as a church and we pray that you would take everything that is given. We pray that you would write the most beautiful church planting story. We pray, Lord, that you would equip us through the Revival Project to purchase property in Jesus' name. Pray that you would do it right now in this room and as the others watch online. As we give on the website, as we give, as the ushers go by, as we give in the box in the back, however it is that we give, I pray that everybody who gives right now would give with joyful hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Strength, courage. The people's faces were still wet with the tears they cried over beloved Moses' death. The second generation of Israelites arrived from across the wilderness to the banks of a raging river. It was time for Joshua to be strong and courageous. This is the story of Israel's finest hour. As long as these Old Testament believers were obedient to God's law, they were miraculously unbeatable. When sin entered the camp, they experienced their first casualties. When they repented drastically, God restored them to invincibility. This story is the polar opposite of the book of Judges. Men acted like men. They took bold action and picked the daunting fights with giants God called them to. The people of God acted like the people of God, instead of doing what was right in their own eyes. People of the Redemption Church, the river rages. Our city does not know the gospel. It is time for strength. It is time for courage. It is time to study and live out the book of Joshua. Would you consider what a blessing it is to be busted in your sin, known at last, and shown love and grace in that moment. If you have artfully crafted artifice, and you have come to church or joined your small group and done a fantastic Oscar-worthy job of convincing everybody in your group, and everybody who sits near you in church, that you've got it together, but secretly you are dying inside, you have robbed yourself of a genuine encounter with restorative grace and genuine relationships. You are lonely because you are unknown 
and this is your fault for having fooled everyone around you. You have feigned righteousness when really you're hurting, you're struggling in sin. It is better by far to willingly, of your own volition, confess and be known than it is to just get busted. Everyone has skeletons in his or her past. And sometimes the tendency is to stuff those skeletons into closets. But those skeletons have a way of busting out. It is better by far to tell God what he already knows and be honest with him about what he saw happen anyway, to confess sin, to walk in repentance, to establish accountability, experience victory, and then in the context of community, right here at the Redemption Church, in a small group, or here in corporate worship, but preferably in a small group where you have a genuine accountability and relationship, be loved as you are known for exactly who you are, not whom you pretend to be. If you have artfully crafted a persona to convince people that you have it all together when you're actually deeply hurting, your loneliness is of your own making. So I pray that you would bust yourself, just confess sin, walk in repentance, be loved and be known. This is a scary prospect in today's culture because when someone is found to have done wrong, our practice now is to publicly shame them, skewer them. All the sinners gather around with stones in their hands to stone the sinner. And so this discourages confession. People who do confess even find their own confessions weaponized against them. This further discourages confession. This, this tendency of our culture is the polar opposite of the gospel. I think we should tell it to go back to hell. I think that we should confess our sins, repent, be healed, be restored. Is this or is this not the redemption church? Take a look at this QR code. This will give you some of the cross references we're going to see. As we in the book of Joshua have arrived at the one defeat we've seen so far in the army of Israel. God has told Joshua, I will be with you as I was with Moses. Be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and very courageous. And you're going to see in today's text that that strength had nothing to do with Joshua's muscles. And that courage had nothing to do with Joshua's own mental fortitude. It was directly, inextricably linked not only to his holiness, but to the corporate holiness of the body. Your sin affects more than just you. We have miraculously crossed the raging Jordan River. And as our curriculum, which is available at the church website, and as our devotions, which are available online as well, beginning October 15th, they'll be available at allies.network. As all these things have shown, we've now taken the city of Jericho. There's a resident there named Rahab. She's going to become a part of the genealogy of Jesus. It's an incredible story. Everything looks great, miraculously brought across the Jordan River. Everything has been restored, like we saw in our curriculum last week. Circumcision is being reinstated. They've observed the Passover. Joshua has an encounter with the commander of God's angel army. And it's time to go to war. 
Jericho is the first city that's taken and everything looks great, but someone in the camp, someone in the army did one of the explicitly forbidden things, the classic error of the Israelites to take on idolatrous practices from the people around them, and then he does a masterful job of clearing his browser history. He does an excellent job of covering his tracks. No living human being knows about his sin. He did a perfect job of taking things that he was not supposed to take from Jericho. They were explicitly told to leave those set-apart objects behind. But in, I mean, a perfect, sleuthful act of thievery, he has taken them with him. He's even concealed them under his tent. He's gone to great links to conceal his sin. And it worked for every human being. But who knew about it? God did. Are you really good at covering your tracks? Would you consider how dangerous that is for a Christian? And even if no one knows about your sin, God does. God does. Numbers 32, 23. You will certainly sin against the Lord. Be sure your sin will catch up with you. Some of us have learned this one the hard way, haven't we? Your sin will catch up with you. I've experienced this. Have you experienced it too? Your sin will catch up with you. It just does. Because God is holy and he's omniscient. He knows. He knows. He knows. Here's Joshua chapter 7. The Israelites, however, were unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of what was set apart, and the Lord's anger burned against the Israelites. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, sometimes pronounced Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and told them, go up and scout the land. So the men went up and scouted Ai. After returning to Joshua, they reported to him, don't send all the people, but send about 2,000 or 3,000 men to attack Ai. Since the people of Ai are so few, don't wear out all our people there. Okay, we've just experienced a huge victory at Jericho. Everything looks great. And there are some elements about this next campaign that bear a resemblance to Jericho, but there are some critical pieces missing in this opening overture to the, to, to the attack on AI. Do you, do you notice what's missing? Do you see what's missing? Did God talk at all in those first three verses? Did anybody consult with God? Anybody pray? And moreover, there's another element here. They had consecrated themselves before the Lord, 
before taking Jericho. There's no such act of consecration here. Like we talked about last week, before you cross the raging Jordan, before you step into the unfamiliar, you leave the acacia grove and go a place you've never gone before, consecrate yourself before the Lord because tomorrow he's gonna do great things through you. As you test and approve God's good and pleasing and perfect will, you don't conform to the pattern of this world, but in a spiritual act of worship, you offer your body as a living sacrifice to God, holy and pleasing to him. Then you'll be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good and pleasing and perfect will. If you're on the verge of a massive life-changing decision, worship your way through it. Slaughter sin with particularly brutal ferocity because it matters. Your holiness always matters. But when your holiness is compromised to the precipice of a massive life trajectory setting decision, the consequences are compounded exponentially. If your sin compromises your community with the Holy Spirit and your ability to test and approve and discern God's will, there's no consecration before the Lord. There's no consulting God. We know what God is thinking because God knows what nobody else in the camp knows. He knows about this guy, Achan, who has taken some of the things that were set apart. Now, the word set apart, you might associate that with holiness. In the book of Joshua, the opening, for these opening cities, you can see that set apart has a negative connotation. They're not set apart for the Lord. They're set apart for, what does the text say in verse one? Do you guys see this? All right, they are set apart, but they're set apart for destruction. Do you see that? Destruction. That's what they're set apart for. God said, I'm gonna destroy these. Achan said, mine. And he took those items with him. And what's funny too is that the items that he took were kind of lame. Now, there's also some arrogance here. Look, look at the way that everybody's talking about, about prepping for this thing. After returning to Joshua, okay, they've gone to scout the land. Okay, that's, that's fairly familiar. We've seen that, we've seen that done before. But then their, 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 their advice is, look, don't send all the people. Just send about 2,000 or 3,000 men. Look, we don't want to wear, wear out all of our people. This, this was not God's idea. This was never prescribed. They're leaning on their own wisdom. How many of you guys were with us through our series in the book of Judges? Right, raise your hand if you studied Judges with us. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's a classic recipe. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Verse four, so about 3,000 men went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of them and chased them from, the, uh, from outside the city gate to the quarries, striking them down on the descent. As a result, the people lost heart. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening, as did the elders of Israel. They all put dust on their heads. This is a sign of deep mourning. They are grief-stricken. They have lost the Lord's protective anointing, and everybody immediately knows it. They have suffered their first casualties. There are only 36 of them, so their losses are nothing compared to those of the cities that, like Jericho or the cities they're about to take, but they know they have lost the anointing, and Joshua's response is the proper response. Immediately, Joshua tore his clothes. This is a sign of deep, intense grief, 
fell face down. That is humility. In the face of sin, it's the only proper response before a holy God. Humility, brokenness, conviction. These are the sacrifices that God demands. This is what pleases the Lord, a broken and contrite heart. Brokenness over sin is a good thing. And it is better if we go before the Lord with hearts that are broken or we ask him to break them, go before the Lord and ask God, break my heart for my sin. It is better by far to go before the Lord in willing brokenness than it is to be humbled by God. All right, raise your hand if you, ever, if you like me, have ever been humbled by God. Okay, you can learn humility the easy way or the hard way. And believe me, it is much better to be broken over your sin than for the Lord to break you because of your sin. Joshua's response is perfect. Brokenness, contrition, humility before the Lord. Not excuses or accusations or blame passing. It wasn't even Joshua's sin. Do you notice that? He's broken over the sin of the people of God. And his response is to go before the Lord, fall face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. The text says right here, until evening, hours, just face down in front of the ark of God. I don't know what went wrong, but I know it was not God. I know that it was us. And I'm the leader of these people, so I'm going to prostrate myself down before the direct presence of God on the earth as long as it takes. And the elders of Israel see him do it, and they're like, yep, that's job one right now. Go before the Lord in humility. Fall face down and seek God. So they put dust on their heads. This is another sign of grieving. Oh, Lord God, Joshua said, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to hand us over to the Amorites for our destruction? If only we had been content to remain on the other side of the Jordan. Here is Joshua's mistake. So he's seen proof that God is with him as he was with Moses. This is not that long after watching the Jordan River miraculously flow vertically, cross over to Jericho, just be given the city miraculously. Does it just march around the city? And they're, you know, they're basically putting on like an amateur marching band show. And then the walls crumble. And then they take the city. They've seen multiple miracles already. Joshua was of the first generation of Israelites miraculously fed by the hand of God. He has seen miracle upon miracle upon miracle upon confirmation upon confirmation upon confirmation. And then the very first sign that they've lost the anointing of God, he's ready to call the whole thing off and go back across the Jordan. He was the one who stood in opposition to the back to Egypt committee. When his mentor Moses and the, and the, the first official priest post Melchizedek, Aaron, fell face down in front of the back to Egypt committee, Joshua and Caleb were the only ones with the guts to stand up 
And now Joshua has articulated that same regrettable, fearful, cowardly sentiment himself. If only we had been content to remain on the other side of the Jordan. I would not use the word content here. If only we had been complacent. If only we had been passive. Reject passivity, Christian. This is uncharacteristic of Joshua. Verse eight, what can I say, Lord, now that Israel has turned its back and run from its enemies? Wow, do you think he's blowing this out of proportion? I think he is. He's calling the whole thing off, questioning whether or not God is with them, wanting to go back across the Jordan, and saying that all of Israel has turned its back and run from its enemies. The truth is that there's just sin in the camp, and someone's got to repent. Verse 9, when the Canaanites and all who live in the land hear about this, they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. Then what will you do about your great name? Now, Joshua's half right about this. This is where, because of this defeat at Ai, this is, this is where the enemy cities do, do detect blood. Okay, like sharks with a drop of blood in the water, they can sense, oh, wait, Israel's not invincible after all. And this will cause some of them to rise up against Israel. Here's what Joshua doesn't know, though. They were going to do that anyway because, stay tuned for our devotions, God made them. God would actively harden the hearts of some of these city-states to cause them to unite together to fight Israel and as a result meet their destruction. God would do that. What Joshua doesn't realize is that God was going to do this anyway. Now, they're not going to wipe out the name of Israel from the earth. And then his question, then what will you do about your great name? Presupposes like, we're the only means by which you can glorify your name. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. Why have you fallen face down? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant that I appointed for them. They have taken some of what was set apart. They have stolen, deceived, and put those things with their own belongings. So the Lord tells Joshua to get up. And I think the question, why have you fallen face down? Is a question about why, where's the one who actually sinned? He's the one who's to fall face down here. He has fallen face down in the fashion of the back to Egypt committee. He has fallen face down and wanted to go back to the Exodus, to camping permanently. Why has he fallen face down? Why has he given up on the campaign? This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They will turn their backs and run from their enemies because they have been set apart for destruction. I will no longer be with you unless you remove from among you what is set apart. Go and consecrate the people. Tell them to consecrate themselves for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There are things that are set apart among you, Israel. You will not be able to stand against your enemies until you remove what is set apart. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the, Lord's, the, Lord, the Lord selects is to come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord selects is to come forward family by family. The family the Lord selects is to come forward man by man. 
The one who is caught with the things set apart must be burned along with everything he has because he has violated the Lord's covenant and committed an outrage in Israel. Joshua got up early the next morning. He had Israel come forward tribe by tribe and the tribe of Judah was selected. Now we saw this in the opening verses. Judah is the tribe that was selected. And if you recall from the opening of the text, here's our man, Achan. He's from the tribe of what Redemption Church? Judah. What is it with this tribe of Judah? Why is that significant? Why does that matter? There would be someone else from the tribe of Judah who would come forward and who would pay the price for sin, but the clear, obvious, critical distinction between a Khan of the tribe of Judah and this prophesied descendant from the tribe of Judah is that Achan would die for his own sin, and he, by his sin, hurt all of Israel. But this other descendant from Judah would be sinless, and he would die for the sins of all of God's people, not just from the tribe of Judah, and not just Zebulun, Issachar, Naphtali, and Dan, and all the 12 tribes, and all the Gentiles who call upon the name of the Lord. This Achan is like the converse of Jesus, but both would die for sin. So he's from the tribe of Judah. That is significant. We know that the Lord was the lion of the tribe of Judah. So you've got 12 tribes. Within those tribes, you have clans. Within those clans, you have families. And then those families are led by men. And so to go through, every tribe would have taken forever. There's like 3 million people total. And so by narrowing it down to the tribe of Judah, boom. We've just narrowed it way down. But the tribe of Judah was also massive. And so within the tribe of Judah, we have to narrow it down to a specific clan. That's verse 17. He had the clans of Judah come forward and the Zerahite clan was selected. He had the Zerahite clan come forward by heads of families and Zabdi was selected. We've seen this name earlier in the text. He then had Zabdi's family come forward man by man and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was selected. So Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and make a confession to him. I urge you, tell me what you have done. Don't hide anything from me. It is confession time. It is time to be busted to the glory of God. It's time to be real. Don't hide anything. When it's confession time, just get busted. It's too late if you've been called out like this. You could have spared yourself had you busted yourself, had you confessed of your own volition and skipped, even as New Testament believers, the whole spiritual discipline process, the church discipline process. Right? If somebody is refusing to come forward in sin and they're already busted in sin and not admitting any wrongdoing, you go to them one-on-one. And if they don't confess, then you bring two or three witnesses. Think members of your small group. And if they're still refusing to repent from sin, they're still refusing to confess that their sin is sin, there's no confession, there's no repentance, then you can bring them before the whole small group. 
And if they still don't repent, they still don't confess, having been confronted one-on-one. By the way, you can do that multiple times. Having been confronted by two or three, having been confronted by the whole small group, and they still insist upon staying in their sin, then this is a person who lacks conviction, lacks the Holy Spirit, refuses to repent, denies the word of God, is not bearing fruit. This person is likely not saved. And so the text of Matthew 18 says you treat them as you would a non-believer. Which in my interpretation means we start over again with the gospel. And so if you eliminate the need for that process by confessing your sin of your own volition, then not only do you likely experience naturally more grace from your fellow sinners, but you also have in your testimony a moment of confession. And if you get busted because that sin that you concealed is unveiled, you, by your confession, have willingly outed yourself. And this becomes a part of your testimony too. But if you're busted because you're just caught, because the Lord reveals your sin for you, because you wouldn't reveal your own sin, the consequences are more dire. If you confess your own sin, it increases trust. If you just get busted in your sin, you miss the opportunity to increase that trust. Joshua has the clans come forward. The clans have their family representatives come forward. And this narrows it down within the tribe of Judah to the Zerahite clan. And then the particular head of of the family, Zabdi's family, comes forward man by man. And then Achan is selected. And he says to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and make a confession to him. I urge you, Tell me what you have done. Don't hide anything from me. It is confession time, Achan. Here's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess. Give glory to God. Don't hide anything. Confess and confess it all. Don't make excuses for your sin. Don't pass blame for your sin. Don't try to polish your sin and make it seem less sinful or make it seem more righteous. Don't try to downplay your sin. Just confess it and confess it all. And if we confess our sins, that's, that's the condition of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, this is cool. Who's faithful, Redemption Church? He is. What's so cool about that is that God made a promise over your soul if you're a Christian. If you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are what, church? Saved. He has made a covenant over your soul. God has adopted you as his own. He has thrown your sins as far as the east is from the west. He has drowned your sins in the depths of the sea. He chooses not to remember your sin against you anymore. He is the faithful one, even when we are unfaithful. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is righteous. He forgives us of our sins, and then he cleanses us from how much of our unrighteousness, church? All, every last sin, completely cleansed to the glory of God. But it all begins with this Right here. What's the first thing that we do, Redemption Church? Confess. 
That's where it begins. Give glory to God. Come forward. You confess. In my past, as a pastor, struggling with sin, I have, out of myself, I have confessed sin. I've walked in repentance from it. But then not knowing details, not confessing specific details, will come up to bite me. I encourage you, confess it, confess it in full detail, everything that's there. And experience the grace of God. Be cleansed from absolutely all unrighteousness. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we've referenced this passage recently and we're going to exposit that entire book in time. So I won't preach an entire other sermon during this sermon, but just know that David, king of Israel, committed adultery and then to try to cover up his tracks when the woman Bathsheba is pregnant, he has her husband come back home, brings him back from the front lines of the battle that David's supposed to be at. He tries to get Uriah to spend the night with his wife, but Uriah is a noble man. He will not sleep in his own house while his soldiers are sleeping out on the battlefield. And so time and time again, Uriah refuses. And then so David just orchestrates it so that Uriah's on the front line. Everybody else draws back. Uriah gets killed. Effectively, David murdered one of his own men, and he caused other men of his to be complicit in it. And he completely destroys Uriah's family. And so the prophet Nathan comes to David and confronts him over this. He tells him a parable, and then David gets mad at the bad guy in the parable. And then Nathan reveals, it's you. David's response is, I have sinned against the Lord. Again, that's the proper response. Okay, when you're busted in your sin, when you're confronted over your sin, humility is your only option. That's your only card you have to play. Humble yourself before the Lord. Confess your sin. Make no excuse for your sin. What comes after that confrontation between Nathan and David is the most exquisite confession prayer I've ever seen in my life. This is Psalm 51. And again, I won't preach a second sermon within this sermon. I'll just read you this text. But know that this is incredible. This is the Old Testament, but I've felt prompted by the Holy Spirit in an evangelistic encounter to make this into like a gospel prayer. I once saw a young woman give her life to Christ, praying the words of Psalm 51. Listen to this. This is David after being busted. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. What an audacious but perfectly appropriate request. He knows that God is able. He believes that God is willing. God, just completely erase my record. Do you see the audacity in such a prayer? This is what he asks God to do. Completely Wash away my guilt and cleanse me from sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self. You teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. 
Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed. God, God of my salvation and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Remember, he was the king over Zion. He's the king in Israel, in, 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 in Judah. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So he's the king of Israel. He's asking God to completely blot out all of his transgressions. Moreover, he's asking God to give him his joy back Thereafter, he's promising God that he, the man who committed adultery and then murder, is going to talk to other people about their sin. This is possible by the grace of God. This is what makes the office of the pastorate possible. All right, if you have a job description for a pastor and you require sinlessness, you're going to get some really interesting characters applying for that job. This is all we have. All we have is your fellow sinners. Look, look, at, look at David. Yep, I think I want to lead a class on the sanctity of human life. I think I want to talk about marriage. I think I want to talk to guys who are struggling with lust. And he's praying this to God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, without irony. And he's right. Because he's not going to do so from a place of condescension. He's going to do so from a place of confession saying, look, I have sinned. I have fallen short of the glory of God. Look, you've sinned. You've fallen short of the glory of God. I've found grace. Let me share that grace with you. Do you see the difference, Christian? I will teach transgressors your ways. I want you, God, to completely wipe away all of my guilt. I want you to restore me, restore my joy, and then I'm going to worship my guts out. The, to say, God, I want to sacrifice bulls on the altar. It's like saying, I want to go to the Redemption Church. I want to stand in the front row. And I'm going to squawk every worship song at the top of my lungs and make the whole theater sound off-key. Because I will never take the grace for granted again. I know that I deserve hell. And instead, I receive heaven. I know that I deserve to die because of my sin. But God has allowed me to live. So I've got a lot to be thankful for. Get me to theater eight now. Speed up the countdown. Click off the band. Start the music. I've got a lot to sing about. See, David lived in the Old Testament. 
And so they had to sacrifice bulls. I sacrifice bovine matter at my house, but it's a fragrant offering to the Lord on my smoker. We no longer are required to do that. Okay, in fact, at Redemption Church, if we gather here together today and we raise up a knife and we like kill a lamb right here at Passover, it's probably time to go over to Crossroads, okay? Because we will have gone off the rails theologically at that point. We no longer need to make sacrifices in anticipation of the Messiah because the Messiah has already come, amen? The sacrifice has already been made. But David lives in the old covenant. He has the audacity to say, and God, make the city from which I rule prosper. After I have committed murder, after I have committed adultery, after I've committed treason against your holy throne that you appointed me to, you know what? Cause us to prosper. This is not audacious in the sense that it is arrogant or unwarranted. It's audacious compared to human standards because David knows the character of God. He knows the heart of God. He was referred to as a man after God's own heart. And the man after God's own heart has sinned against God, gone before him, immediately confessed his sin, made zero excuses for it, asked for complete restoration and cleansing, forgiveness and redemption. That's a beautiful prayer of confession. And it is wholly lost on secular culture today. There is no metric by which we can account for such mercy and grace as what God shows sinners. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ provides a paradigm upon which such redemption can even be conceived. Because we default to legalism and a secular culture having abdicated the sense of justice that God gives, has no longer any basis then for mercy, for grace, for forgiveness. And so when you mess up and you're busted, you become gutter trash. And so everyone, everyone, everyone sees how we treat the busted. And everyone, everyone, everyone has something about us that if it became public knowledge... We would want to be co commit suicide for the humiliation and the shame. Every single person alive has something in their past or about themselves that if it became broadcast on the internet or on the news and the whole world found out about it, the despair would be so great it would make you suicidal. Everyone has something like that about themselves. And then we skewer the people who are found out and so that cloisters us further and deeper into our shame shell. And it prevents authentic, genuine fellowship in the context of the small group. It sabotages the church and it hamstrings the advancement of the gospel. Especially when churches act like that. When churches eat their own, shoot their wounded. It gives a testimony to the community around that this is the anti-gospel. This is the redemption church, amen? At this church, we believe the gospel. We pray like David. And we see reflections of ourselves in fellow sinners. And like David, we say, come in. Look at the grace that I've found. Like you, I have sinned. I have fallen short of the glory of God. And look at the grace that I have found. This is a beautiful prayer of repentance. Here's another one in Psalm 32. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. Does that sound good? 
yes, it does. When I kept silent, oh man, some of you drove all the way to AMC just to hear this verse right here. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Selah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you. What is this word right here? I don't know. I don't understand it. What is that word? Help me pronounce it, Redemption Church. Immediately, right away, confess, 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 repent, establish accountability, and experience victory immediately. It is the devil himself who would keep you from experiencing Holiness, authenticity, forgiveness, grace, actual love, not love for the mask that you created. Love for you, broken as you are, contrite over your sin, redeemed by grace. At this church, we look at you and we see you the way that Jesus sees you. So you confess immediately. Don't wait to be busted. Don't let your sin fester. Don't let the set-apart articles Bring hellfire from under your tent because it doesn't just affect you, it affects other people too, even if you do an exceptional job of covering your tracks. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give counsel. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding that must be controlled with a bit or bridle or else it will not come near you. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Give glory to God. Come forward. Confess your sins and abide richly in the restorative grace. Joshua 1.9 is one of the most popular verses in the whole Bible, but in our first sermon we saw that it's often then divorced from the responsibility that comes. The story of Achan is also fairly prominent, but not as much so. And it's because what follows in the text is comparatively brutal. Because as I've just shared about the grace that God has for sinners, we must also always ever true to the word of God talk about the wrath he has for sin. Verse 20, Achan replied to Joshua, it is true I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Babylon, five pounds of silver and a bar of gold weighing a pound and a quarter. I coveted them and took them. You can see for yourself, they are concealed in the ground inside my tent with the silver under the cloak. So Joshua sent messengers who ran to the tent and there was the cloak concealed in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from inside the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out in the Lord's presence. And then 
they said, hey, it's okay, Achan, let's hug it out. And everybody went home and had tiramisu. Is that what the text says? Confessing your sin is not going to absolve you of the consequences of your sin. Look at verse 24. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the cloak, and the bar of gold, his sons and daughters, his ox, donkey, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and brought them up to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought us trouble? Today the Lord will bring you trouble. So all Israel stoned them to death. They burned their bodies, threw stones on them, and raised over him a large pile of rocks that remains still today. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, that place is called the Valley of Achor still today. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid or discouraged. Take all the troops with you and go attack Ai. Look, I have handed over to you the king of Ai, his people, city, and land. So begins the next chapter after the sin is dealt with. So I don't want to sell you cheap grace as German missionary and activist against the Nazis, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it, cheap grace, wherein there's no repentance required, there's just grace, there's just mercy. God is a toothless God. He's a castrated sissy. He's a real pushover. Frankly, he's a corrupt judge. And if you slip him a few hundred dollar bills, you can just get away with everything. No. He is holy. He is perfect. He does not compromise. He takes sin just as seriously today in this theater as he did on the day the events of Joshua chapter 7 took place. His hatred for sin has not abated one iota. He is just as holy today. So Jesse, what do I do? You've spent this whole sermon looking at this text and telling me to confess, 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 and then you didn't tell me that at the end the guy gets stoned to death. So what am I supposed to do? Buck up. Confess. And face what modicum of the consequences of your sin God demands, knowing that you will never face the eternal weight of them. You need to know this, my skeptical friend. You need to know this because there is a cheap grace Christianity that tops the bestseller lists and packs out arenas. You need to know this because you've you maybe heard Joshua chapter 7, but maybe it stopped short of the end. And maybe you've been pitched a version of the gospel that robs the cross of its brutality and therefore its glory, that cheapens and downplays your sin and makes God out to be a judge who just looks the other way, rather than the holy son of God going to the cross to take upon himself the absolute full price for every one of our sins. He is holy 
And your holiness is directly proportional to how honest you have been with him about what he already knows anyway. So be forthright. Confess. Face whatever earthly consequences there are. David was totally forgiven by God. But the sword never left his house the rest of the days of his life. God absolutely forgives you of your sin, but then will allow you to suffer consequences for it. Some of this is discipline. Some of this is just God's earthly justice in the temporal sense. But what is beautiful, what is permanent, what lasts forever, what is eternal, is that your soul will remain in heaven forevermore glorified before God, free at last from your sin nature, absolved absolutely. Every last one of your sins paid in full. And so you have this choice between keeping up the charade and letting God expose the things that you've hidden under your tent and facing worse consequences or confessing your sins, being cleansed of all of your unrighteousness. Don't hide it under your tent. Cut it off, throw it away. Gouge it out and throw it away. Walk in holiness and then observe what happens to our scrappy little church plant. Observe what happens as a people asking God to bring revival here. Observe what happens to Seattle. You have a limitless supply of headlines that make you aghast. This just in, sinners sin. What are you prepared to do? It begins in your heart. It begins in the house of God. It begins with us, Christian. So, shall we stand up? Go before the Lord. Confess sin. Because he already knows about it anyway. Let's stand together. And let's confess sin. If you're not yet a Christian, this is the very first time that you've ever confessed sin. I want you to pray with me right now. God, I confess, I have sinned, I have fallen short of the glory of God. And I confess that the wages of that sin is death, just like Achan. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no way I can come to God the Father except through Jesus. I am a Khan. I have sinned. I have hidden it. And now I'm standing before God. I know that I must stand before him one day anyway. And I would rather confess it now and stand before him as my savior and not only as my judge. I confess my sins. I confess the truth. I confess that Jesus is Lord. Redemption Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord. God, I believe in my heart that you raised Jesus from the dead. Now God, instead of answering the full price for my sin, instead of being stoned to death for my sin, let me be saved instead. Saved, saved, saved. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've given your heart and life to Jesus Christ, tell us on that connect card. Let us know. 
Christian, if you've got sin to confess before the Lord, do it now. Let's go before the Lord and let's worship him.